Section 14 of The Rose-Colored World and Other Fantasies. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dimitris. The Rose-Colored World and Other Fantasies by Ethel Mary Brody. The Bend of the Hill We had often watched the trains passing to and fro over the Tuthmay Railroad, but the suggestive blank after their disappearing around the bend of the hill ever fascinated us because of the mystery of the river and the bridge beyond. We never could know that the train crossed the Tuthmay Bridge and reached the other shore in safety. Watching the train was like going on an unknown voyage. We never knew what was its end. In my early married life, I lived a couple of miles from the Tuthmay Railroad Station. My house was on the bank of the Tuthmay River. It was a wide river, which swept out to sea in a wider mouth, spreading between muddy flats and level lands. From the dining-room window, we could see the railroad and could follow it from the station. But as it neared the river, we lost sight of it around the bend of the hill. Then we knew that the train, if we were following it with our eyes, had reached the Tuthmay Bridge and probably was crossing it. My wife and I had come there in the early spring. We soon learned to love the railroad line. The enigma of the hill and bridge never ceased to interest us. All through the summertime we daily saw the trains running over the road with such faith and surety, and we would watch their twinkling lights as they spun along in the moonlight nights. It all seemed so certain then, with the smell of hay and the scent of flowers in the air the clucking of chickens, the neighing of horses, and the sweet world of summer surrounding us. Nevertheless, a strange fear of the bend of the hill often haunted us. In the rains and mists and on cloudy days, it breathed a spirit forlorn and mysterious. We sometimes shuddered as we looked out across the fields to the bend, so dark in the dreary light and we would wonder at the bravery of the engineer in taking his train across the black, surly river. Then autumn approached, and as the days grew shorter and the nights so long, the railroad began to have a horror for us. It still held us with a strange fascination, but fear gathered in our hearts, and we dreaded it. The hill was crowned with a coronal of the brown and gold of autumn. But when the leaves fell, and the lack of foliage laid bare the boughs and twigs, the coronal faded into a crown of thorns. The days grew colder and very dreary, their grey skies banked with heavy clouds. And when the sun set, it blazed on the bend, and, we supposed on the bridge, with a fury which might have burned both and laid them in ashes before morning. Or would it have been so? 
Winter came. Its chill winds, the snow, the ice and the frost. Such icy blasts blew off the Tathmay River and over fields of snow. The hill stood like a ghostly thing robed in white and froze the neighborhood with its chilly aloofness. The river froze till it was a sheet of immovable ice, sphinx-like in its cruelty of cold and silence. The winds howled across it with a menacing fury. They roared up and down the river and around the bend, and we felt they must have frozen the very heart of the steel in the Tuthmay Bridge. Sometimes its horror was too much for us, and we would pull down the blinds to shut it out, and throw more wood on the fire to make it burn up in a warm, comfortable blaze. Hurricanes of wind and snow drove madly over the Tuthmay River. In a whirlwind of snow, they circled the hill. Large drifts they threw over the fences and into the hollows. They shrouded the trees and the hedges in white and made cold monks at their prayers of the bushes and haystacks. Every roof and barn was sheathed in snow and it drove thick and fast till the air became opaque. Sometimes we wondered how the trains ever struggled through such blinding storms of snow and ice. The track was kept clear in winter, as the Tathmay route was an important one. Day after day, in the cyclonic storms of winter, we would hear the whistle of the train as it neared the bend, and we would hurry to the windows and watch it. The long black thing, it seemed alive to us, would strive and writhe through the drifts and banks of snow, blowing white steam into the air with its painting. It would squirm its way along, slowly, top-heavy, it seemed like a huge tortoise, and ever tending towards the cold and ghostly hill. Then it would vanish from sight, and we were awed by the mystery of the bend. One stormy wintry evening, about the middle of January, my wife and I were cosily sitting by our fireside. Our baby boy had not seemed very well that day, and I was glad to see my wife resting while the boy slept. Our fireside was an old-fashioned open grate, and a kettle hung at one side, steaming and puffing and singing cheerily. I was sprawling on a rug before the fire, smoking a pipe, while my wife was ensconced in a big, cozy chair. We could hear the wind howling around the house and screaming down the chimneys. The veranda creaked and the twigs of the bushes snapped with the bitter frost. What a terrible night, said my wife, giving the fire a friendly poke. Terrible indeed, I answered lazily. How glad I am that you are not an engineer, dear, she said with a sigh of thankfulness. On a night like this it would not be very pleasant, rather more uncomfortable than this, I returned, puffing contentedly at my pipe. Fancy what the bridge and the river must look like on a stormy night like this. And she shuddered. Dreadful, I answered sleepily. 
When I think of all those crowded, lighted cars with their fright of trusting humanity, it makes me shiver when I think of the bridge. I don't envy the engineer. What a responsibility, continued my wife, as if picturing it to herself. Don't think about it, I suggested, snuggling close to the fire, for the engineer's life did not seem an easy one on that night. But somehow I can't help thinking about it tonight, she went on quietly, and thinking of all those people when the train crosses. But her remark was cut short. In the midst of our homely enjoyment, a knock sounded on the front door. I went out and opened it. A man stood on the threshold, covered with snow. As I opened the door, he handed me a telegram and asked if there was an answer. I read it. My father was dangerously ill. Would I come at once? It was from my mother. I knew the night train passed our station at ten o'clock. It was nearly half past nine now, allowing me scarce more than a half hour's grace to pack and get there. And it was a dreadful night. I hurried into the room where we had been sitting. My wife paled as I told her. Such a night, dear, she exclaimed anxiously, and that awful bridge. But if your father is so ill, you must go. So I hastened to pack a few things, and soon I was ready. Indeed, I was saying goodbye when we heard a scream from our boy. I flew upstairs as if my feet were winged, my wife following. I burst into the room, and there was the poor little fellow on the floor, struggling with infantile energy to free himself from the melee of bedclothes. A crying spell followed, and we had our hands full and our brains busy trying to soothe and alleviate the little man's distress. In the midst of this unexpected excitement, I forgot the time. Any answer, sir? came the man's voice up the stairs. No, I'm coming, I shouted back, heading for the stairs in haste. Coming for what? inquired the man, as with lightning speed I arrived at the foot of the steps. Ten o'clock train, I answered sharply, indignant with the man's apparent stupidity. Ten o'clock train? he cried, surprised. Of course, I replied. The man gasped. Why, you're too late. Too late, man? It's a matter of life and death. I must go. Just about ten minutes to ten, sir, he said quietly, taking out his watch. Can't do it a night like this. It must be done. We can cross to the track from here and signal the train. I grew more determined as he more doubtful. That is all very well in the summertime, remarked the man. But the train will have reached the bend by the time we cross the fields. Lord, sir, on a night like this, and at this hour, your signal will go unseen. It can't be done. And he slowly shook his head. Our chances are slimmer now, with all this waste talk, I returned angrily. Life and death, fellow. Come, let's try for it. The man deliberately pointed to the door and said, Look outside, sir. I did so and gazed out on the wildest night I had ever seen. I had witnessed many storms in that neighborhood, 
but such a blizzard as swept the world that night I have never seen since and never wished to see again. As I looked toward the railroad, a feeling of terror came over me. But the man's voice broke in upon my fear. Well, sir, what do you think of it? I turned silently. Our eyes met, and I felt that the man shared my strange foreboding terror. However it passed, and I bade the man warm himself, and my wife made him a cup of tea. It was five minutes to ten by the dining-room clock. The logs on the fire crackled cheerfully as they spat long tongues of flame and showers of sparks into the chimney. The clock ticked steadily on. My thoughts flew to my sick parent. I was filled with anxiety as I thought of my mother's telegram. And I was blue at having missed the train. In the midst of these distressing reflections, my wife laid her gentle hand on my arm. Baby is asleep, she murmured softly. Maybe, I answered rather irritably, but I wish she had had his fall after I had gone, instead of before. I am so thankful you are not out in that storm, she continued, ignoring my irritation. And then she added with a strange, faraway expression in her eyes, God has a wonderful way of accomplishing things, despite everyone and everything, and experiences that look very black to us often hide some deliverance from worse trouble, or cloud the sun that it may shine all the more brilliantly later on. I'm sorry, dear, that you have missed the train, but perhaps God had a reason for it. I was surprised at her earnestness, for my mind was with my father. Now that baby slept, his fall appeared a light matter compared with the telegram. But as she stood there smiling up at me, I felt reassured. Having missed the train, I was interested in seeing it pass. It would only increase my misery to see I had lost it, and for so small a matter as baby's fall. But I stood there, my wife beside me. I suppose it was human nature, so we all continue to think of the things we have dearly lost. It was a terrible night. The wind rose fiercer as the night advanced. It moaned and shrieked among the rafters. It groaned around the eaves. It shook the house in its mighty grasp. Hither and thither the snow was scurrying, piling up and blowing down, sweeping in grand circles and whirling in little eddies, darkening the night in clouds of flakes. Here and there appeared a cottage light, flickering hopelessly in the tempest. Far away, near the bend of the hill, we could see the green light. It seemed to say, take care. And we knew that the white light was shining along the tracks, signaling to the approaching express a clear road and safe passage across the Tathme Bridge. As we watched, we heard the whistle of the train, long and clear and we knew that it had reached the station. Then the clock on the mantel struck the hour. Ten it chimed. The man by the fire finished his cup of tea and arose, rubbing his hands vigorously in anticipation of his icy drive. He bade us a hearty good night and was gone. Monotonously the clock ticked on. I glanced at it. The minutes seemed hours. Unless the ten o'clock express was signaled to stop, it passed right through the Tathme station. In another minute, it ought to be at the bend of the hill. 
and soon it would speed out on the Tuthmay Bridge. My wife pressed my arm. There it was, winding and crawling through the whirlwind of snow and the high banks. The ruddy glare from its funnel, gleaming on the night like the eye of a black devil. The lights of the passenger cars glimmered and twinkled through the eddying snow and shone luridly in the mist, like so many baby devils, merry and ready for a night's frolic with the blinding flakes. On came the train. Now it seemed like a demon with its lurking gloomy flame and smoke smearing the atmosphere. Again, a great dark monster fighting for life and in its last death throes amidst the snow. Horrible it was, but it held us by the window with a weird, inexplicable power. Nearer and nearer the express approached the bend. How we wished the hill would vanish and let us see it across the bridge. Then the tree whistled as it ever did near the bend, whistled a full, ringing sound as if to reassure us that it had fared well so far on its journey. It was five minutes past ten. Slowly the glaring fire of the engine disappeared, the baggage cars followed, then the passenger cars, the lights dancing brightly and hopefully as they vanished behind the bend. Finally, the last car receded with its red tail light danger, and the hill gloomed darker than ever. My wife sank into a chair with almost a groan of relief, as if she had experienced a heavy strain and was completely exhausted. It is on the Tuthmay Bridge now, she sighed deeply. Yes, and I might have been there too, and partway on my jer... I broke off. Good God! I cried. What was that? In a moment we were at the window. With awestruck faces we gazed out. The train whistled and whistled again, wild shrieks which fell weirdly on the night. The last mad scream died in a tremendous crash and a strange gurgling sound. We stared at the bend as if our eyes were chained to the spot. A great, dazzling red light shot into the heavens, shone a moment, faded to a glimmering brightness, and then died. It left the night blacker than before and the hill more sullen. The wind wailed and cried over the fields and around the house. It whistled shrilly through the keyholes and rattled loose windows. A harsh sound from the veranda told that the frost was biting into the sole of the wood. The snow twirled and whipped into eddying gusts over the roofs, the meadows, the orchards, and away on the dark, bleak river, where the ice creaked against the shores. The stillness of death spread over its glassy surface. For hours we stood at the window. The clock ticked the minutes as they fled away. It chimed the hours as they swiftly passed. We did not speak. We knew how time sped on. The fire sank to ashes. The kettle ceased its song. The lamp burned ever lower. Days seemed to have slipped away when dawn started in the east. As day drew on, the lamp paled and died. Still we stood there, our eyes riveted on the bend with a deadly fascination. As the light brightened with sunrise, the air grew chill. The storm had passed. In its sea of wintry blue, 
the sky was fresh and clear. Everywhere the snow gleamed dully in the early morning. The wind had fallen and hardly a breath stirred. In the distance the Tathme River lay still and quiet, tomb-like in its sheet of icy armor. Gazing on the peaceful landscape, we could scarce believe such a blizzard had whirled around us the night before. The hill frowned dark, cold, ghostly, and a mystery enshrouded it. We dreaded it. No train had passed over the Tathmail Railroad since the ten o'clock express had vanished last night around the bend of the hill, out of our sight and out of the world. End of section 14